and welcome to the Lagos Institute podcast, the official podcast of the Lagos Institute for Analytic and Exegetical Theology, based in St. Andrews, Scotland. In today's episode, Danny and Jason continue their interview with Teresa Morgan on her recently released book, The New Testament and the Theology of Trust, This Rich Trust. Last episode, we concluded our discussion on Professor Morgan's account of God's therapeutic trust in humanity. In today's episode, we pick up our discussion on the book's model of trust and the role of action in faith. As always, thanks for joining us, and we hope that you enjoy. It sounds almost your trust model, it requires action. Yeah. And the, and pistis being uh, translated into faith and kind of, um, our modern use of faith, at least in, um, I don't know, Protestant North American um, <laughs> Christianity, um, it's very passive. It comes with kind of these passive undertones of faith, blindly mm. taking a step, you know, um, if there's a step, just believing. And so y- your trust is calling humans into action and into this relationship of trust. Yeah, um, in um, in the Greek that Christians inherit, pistis is both an attitude and an action. Trust is very definitely both an attitude and an and indeed modern philosophers would say that too. They would think of trust as both an attitude and an action. Now, you can hold the attitude without acting on it. And sometimes you can act with trust when you don't feel it. Mm. Um, and sometimes that's, that's a sort of fake it till you make it approach. And sometimes that may be the right thing to do. And I've tried to give some examples in the book of times where that might actually be the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. But ideally, I think both in the ancient world and in the, in, certainly in modern philosophy, ideally people think that the attitude and the action should go together. And so that's what I'm suggesting, really. And that's what's in my model, really, that ideally the attitude and the action to go together. And there may be times when you can hold the attitude and you don't need to act immediately. And there may be times when you need to act when you don't feel confidence. Um, One of my colleagues, Dan McCoy, um, has done some wonderful work with the example of Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta, arguing that um, quite soon after um, she became a nun, it seems that she just stopped being able to feel God's love for her. And she lived an awful lot of her life of service with a terrible sense of kind of void and darkness and not being able to feel God's love for her. Um, and yet she remained extraordinarily faithful um, in her calling. So she acted with trust and faithfulness when she didn't feel it, really. She didn't, you know, she couldn't feel kind of the object of it. Um, and so he, he, showed, he, he argues that that's an example of somebody being able to act without, you know, the, the attitude or the feeling. Um, and I think that's right. Uh, but in a perfect world, you, you try to hold the two together as much as possible, really. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's helpful. And it helps to connect too, I think, too, to back to the notion, I guess, certain aspects of therapeutic trust that you were mentioning earlier. And in particular, um, why it, it seems to make sense that God, in a certain sense, trusts human persons. You, you mentioned earlier, too, also about the connection between faith and um, God's knowledge. But there's a particular sort of knowledge, I think, that you hint at in the book with respect to what sort of God's trust in us connects to or the sort of what we might call personal knowledge or interpersonal knowledge. Um, how does that sort of function or work in your account of, of trust in the divine human relationship? Yes. Um, so the idea that um, God might trust in us 
which um, one or two theologians and philosophers of religion have raised, although um, mostly not at great length, but uh, it's a bit. Um, William Holtzson recently has, um, yeah, yeah. philosopher of religion, has, has written a book about God's trust in us. But it does raise the question, if we imagine God, if we think of God as omniscient, as classical doctrine does, God knows everything, then how does it make sense to suggest that God trusts in us? Because normally we trust, we don't, if we know something is going to happen, we don't need to trust in a person if we know they're going to do something. You know, yeah. trust is not really the issue. It's normal, trust is normally the issue when we're not certain about something. Right, right. Um, so if God knows everything, you know, in what sense does it make sense to say that God trusts us? Um, now, one way you could do that would be to take the root of sort of so-called open theism and say, well, God knows a range of possibilities. But doesn't know, you know, doesn't, as it were, um, uh, know or insist on which one is going to happen. And I think that is a possible. That's definitely a possible response, and that would fit with my view of God's trusting us. Um, but I'm attracted by something a little bit different, which is um, the idea, which is, is, you know, it's around quite a bit in recent theology. Um, it doesn't ever quite seem to be nailed as a really central. Um, uh, approach to the knowledge of God, but it is around. I mean, this is the idea that, that God's knowledge of us is not knowledge of facts, knowledge of the future, knowledge of stuff. It's knowledge of us. It is deep, personal, interpersonal knowing of us. Um, and similarly, a theme which also some theologians have explored, the idea that our knowledge of God is not knowledge of what God is like. It's not knowledge of facts about God, as it were. It is knowledge, personal knowledge of God, personal knowing God. Um, and that I, f I find that a very attractive idea in its own right. It's, it makes sense to me that, that our relationship with God is not governed by, um, or it's not really characterised by knowing stuff. And God's relationship with us is not characterised by knowing stuff. It's characterised by knowing each other personally. Just as in human relations, you know, you know, in the relation, your relationship with the human beings you're closest to, the most important thing is not kind of knowing facts about them. <laughs> the most important thing is knowing them in a personal way. You know? yeah. So I think um, I want to think that it's the same of, with our knowledge of God. And so what I suggest is that when God takes a risk on us, as it were, God doesn't know how we're going to respond. But God knows what I've, the way I have put it is that God knows that humanity is basically a good kid. God knows us, knows that deep down we are good enough, having have the potential to respond well with trust yeah. and to be trustworthy in what we're entrusted with. So I think God's God trusts us because God knows us. Yeah. And that gives God confidence that we will ultimately get this relationship right, as it were. When yeah. you mentioned that trust is a significant part of just any kind of relationship and you can't have a deep meaningful relationship you can't know who you are yourself or the other person without it so this is a key to it seems like a relational knowledge that you're saying that god has about us okay so i was wondering if you could touch on a little bit about the relationship between trust and care and trust and power yes it's a very good question because I've talked quite a lot in the book about trust as quite an empowering thing. Um, you know, Jesus tells his followers that if they have trust the size of a mustard seed, they can move mountains. Um, he criticizes them when they can't heal um, a young boy uh, for not having enough trust. So there is a very definite connection made between um, uh, trusting in God, trusting in Jesus himself, 
um, and being given power in New Testament. However, that raises an interesting question because there is also a very strong theme in New Testament writings about power coming from the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. So what's the relationship between the power you get from trust and the power you get from the Spirit? Are they two different things? Are they the same thing? Um, and there is a lot of discussion about the relationship between um, pistis, trust, and power, uh, particularly um, uh, in um, writings among scholars who write about the spirit and write about the connection between the spirit and power. And there is a lot, there is a big debate about whether um, uh, trust itself is a gift of the spirit. Hmm. And therefore, trust itself is kind of a power that comes from the spirit. Like the gift then, of faith, that sort of a thing. Okay. Exactly. And then lots of other powers also come from the spirit. Mm -hmm. Or whether the gift of the spirit is a result of trust. Um, so quite which comes first, trust or the gift of the spirit. Um, and therefore, where the power comes from, as it were, is a matter of ongoing debate. Uh, now, there are good arguments on both, the, on both sides of this debate. And some of the passages are extremely um, unclear you know frankly paul for a start could have made his thinking on this a great deal clearer than he does and he would have been very helpful but that's life um, um i'm slightly i'm slightly on the side i come down i think there are good arguments on both sides but i come down on the side that um trust is prior and um that trust it's after people have made that first move of trust in god towards god and christ that the gift of the spirit tends to come to them mm -hmm. um and it's after that that all the individual gifts of the spirit come to them um and also that they are empowered um, to heal or to preach or whatever it is that they are given to do so i think probably initially trust language and spirit language um, are both inherited by Christians from Judaism. They're both independently inherited strands of tradition. They're both independent ideas, but they do then get woven together in New Testament writings and increasingly afterwards. So, um, so there is a little bit of, um, uh, you know, maybe um, trust gives you power, uh, but maybe the, um, well, I, I, I'm not sure that the spirit does enable you to trust, but anyway. Um, I think overall, my sense is that that people start by putting their trust in God and Christ, and that then on receiving the Spirit, they're enabled to do various things. Um, well, I think I'm not sure it's clear really whether people who have put their trust in Christ are ever shown as performing deeds of power before they have also received the Spirit. Hmm. So it may be that the idea that Christians are sort of working towards is that you have to have both at trust and the gift of the spirit in order to enact to, in order to enact power to act with power yeah. um but it's um i think perhaps because they inherit the two ideas sort of um in their own each in their own right um it's maybe not very clear to the earliest writers themselves quite what the relationship is so would you say then that with the initial act of trust then you receive the work of the spirit after then any consequent act of trust is that empowered by the spirit or is it also separated i think probably um our early writers would not distinguish hmm. um i think probably people's ongoing faithfulness for instance and their actions individual actions with trust Surely someone like Paul would say that's all part of life in the spirit. Mm. You can imagine him saying, I don't think he does quite that anyway, but you can imagine him saying ongoing 
trust is surely part of life in the spirit. And I think, I mean, there are two places where he talks about pistis as a gift of the spirit. And these are two key passages for people who say the gift of the spirit comes first. And one of these is 1 Corinthians 12 and the other is Galatians 5. Um, uh, so in 1 Corinthians 12, pistis is one of the specific gifts of the spirit. Now, he's talking there to the Corinthians who have all already put their trust in God and Christ because they are part of the community. So I think there he must be talking about a pistis, which is um, which is a more specific thing than trusting God as a whole. Right. You know, so maybe you get the gift of the spirit you, as a gift of the spirit, you get pistis in the form of special trustworthiness. Hmm. Or what I've suggested in the book for as an interpretation of that passage is that it's the pristis of apostleship, which doesn't otherwise appear in that list, but you might expect that it would. And Paul certainly thinks he has the pistis of apostleship. God has entrusted him with apostleship, he says. So maybe the specific kind of pistis you get from the spirit is the gift of apostleship, say, or extreme trustworthiness or whatever. Um, similarly, in Galatians 5, pistis is one of the part of the fruit of the spirit. Um, and again, maybe there... Maybe it's exceptional faithfulness or exceptional trustworthiness mm. or perhaps the gift of ongoing faithfulness. So you can see, I think you can certainly see certain forms of pistis as being coming from the spirit, a gift or a fruit of the spirit. Mm. Um, rather, perhaps, than trusting God to call as a whole. Yeah. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. It's interesting that you note that sort of connection with the role of the spirit and um, the connections to um, this sort of notion of power and in being empowered. Yeah. And I'm curious, too, if you can sort of speak to uh, how this connects with your understanding of revelation in faith. Um, and perhaps we could go the route of talking about um, the connection of propositional trust in your book, in your account, and how that might link up to um yeah, this this notion of power and revelation and the goal or role of the spirit in in the life of faith. I'll start by trying to connect um, uh, trust and revelation a bit, and, and with Great. positional trust, perhaps. Um, this idea that we've been talking about um, that God takes a risk on us, you know, um, by trusting us, by sending us a non-traditional looking Messiah, <laughs> as it were. Um, I've suggested that particularly in the synoptic gospels, and I think John is a bit different here, um, but that would fit with an idea that um, in Jesus's earthly life and death, at least, um, God is not offering human beings a sort of grand, explicit new revelation. Rather, God is offering humanity the prospect, the possibility of coming to trust in somebody who within their own traditions, whether Jewish or Gentile, they should have been able to recognize as a man of God, um, an, an absolutely um, exceptionally unique man of God, somebody of um, unique power, of unique faithfulness to God. Um, and that as a starting point, that might be enough for trust. And this links with an idea I have throughout the book which is that trust is incremental. Um, you don't have one blazing reveal, you know, you don't have one blazing moment of trust on the basis of total revelation and understanding of, of God and Christ and humanity. Um, you, you encounter someone, something, 
in Christ, which is extraordinary, powerful, a bit mysterious. You don't totally understand it, but you put your trust in it, in him, um, and it's a starting point. And human trust is always imperfect and fragile and doesn't really totally understand what it's looking at, but it's a start and it can develop. And actually, all New Testament writers are quite keen on the idea that it can and does develop through time. Trust, and maybe it keeps developing right till the end. Yeah. So trust is sort of, it's it's a bit fragile. It's a bit imperfect. It never really understands any, everything. It makes mistakes, but that's kind of okay. And I've developed this idea of the adequacy of perfect trust. Um, and the idea of propositional trust, which I've also talked about in the book, I think fits quite well with that because um, propositional trust is the idea that we might trust that something is true. Knowing that we don't know, we can't be sure. We may not even quite be able to say we believe that it is true in a kind of strong sense, but we're willing to entrust ourselves to it. We're willing to take a risk on it. And um, we live in a world which is quite skeptical, quite nervous of the idea of knowledge of God. In a, especially in a sort of propositional knowledge of, you know, facts about God, as it were. We yeah. also live in a world which is even quite nervous of the idea of believing in God. But I have suggested that in such a world, it might still be possible to say, I'm willing to put my trust in God. I'm willing to trust that God is real, that salvation is real, that hope, that Christian hope is justified. Even if I know I don't know, even if I'm not totally sure what I believe, and even if I know I'm very fragile, and I'll probably mess up. But I think it might, I might be able to trust that this is true. This, this teaching, this, you know, encounter that we have with Christ is true. So what I am suggesting God offers us and we have through Christ is something short of a kind of blazing, um, unmissable revelation, indisputable revelation. It's not that. It is the offer of a relationship in which we can't be quite certain, but it, we think it's worth pursuing, you know. Um, and I think I've, I've tried to develop the idea that that is particularly clear in the gospel stories about the, the, um, the life of Christ. And I think um, in Christ's earthly life, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't be so worried about the idea that um, it, uh, People have worried about the idea that, you know, the Messiah comes and the Messiah, it should be very obvious when the Messiah comes. And yet somehow it's not obvious when Jesus comes and not everybody gets it. And maybe that's because it's it's meant to be a secret. But then why would it be meant to be a secret if the whole point is salvation? It seems very odd, you know. But I've suggested that if what God is offering us is a relationship of trust rather than just a kind of enormous revelation which makes us all fall down in terror, you know. <laughs> Maybe that's maybe that's part of it. Maybe you know it's part of being offered a relationship with tr of trust that you're you know you don't necessarily know, but it's something you can trust in. <laughs> One and something you can trust in. So the idea of um, of, of that what, what we are not that we're not offered this kind of absolutely ungainsayable revelation, but we're offered a relationship fits with this idea that we don't necessarily know everything about God and Christ and our future, but we perhaps the encounter that we have makes us feel that it's worth trusting. Um, so that's how the idea of sort of um, the lack of an unambiguous revelation, as it were, in Christ and our putting our trust in Christ and our also having propositional trust that God and, and Christ are worth trusting. It fit together in the book. Now, there is one bit in that argument that sticks out a bit, which is that 
um, I do think it makes sense to understand the resurrection as a revelation. And I've talked, um, I've got a chapter on um, trust in atonement, where I'm trying to develop a sort of trust-based theory of atonement. And But in that, I have said that I think we have to imagine that the resurrection is a revelation to Jesus's followers, without which they it just might have been too difficult for them to go on trusting him. I mean, you know, at the point where Jesus is arrested and crucified, it looks so much to the disciples as if everything they trusted in was wrong. Hmm. You know, could they have, maybe in a perfect world, they could have got over that themselves. If they had been as trusting of God as Jesus was, they they should have been able to recognize that even the death of Christ was not um, a sign that he wasn't who he said he was. It's not a sign that they shouldn't trust in him. It's not a sign they shouldn't trust in God. It's not a, it's not a kind of life ending catastrophe because where people trust God, even suffering and death don't end that relationship. So in a perfect world, if the disciples had been really trusting, really trusted Christ, really trusted God, as much as Christ himself did, they might not have needed the revelation of the resurrection experiences. But they weren't that trust. They were not that good. They just weren't, you know. They were fragile and they were frightened and they ran away. So maybe they needed the revelation of the resurrection experiences to help them over that crisis. And so the re- and so I think I would say that the resurrection experiences are, they're not a necessary revelation, but they are a gift. They're a grace mm. by God to say, okay, you are in a terrible situation here. You're not frankly good enough to get over this by yourselves. <laughs> you're not, your trust is just not strong enough. Let's face facts. And they have, as it were, the gift of these um, visions of the risen Christ. Um, and so I think that 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 is the one place where you have to think of, you have to factor in revelation into the story in a sense, but not as something which had to happen, not as something, yeah, not as something which in itself creates the divine, the new relationship, but as a gift along the way to the very human disciples. <laughs> yeah, super interesting. Okay, then this, I, I guess, would be great if you could, you do have a pistis model of atonement. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if the resurrection didn't have to happen, if this was a risky endeavor, the Christ event was risky, um, his life and his death and his resurrection. How do we see this through your model of, of trust? How does, what is, you know, we like to say, what's the mechanism of our, you know, redemption, our salvation um, in your model of faith, or pistis atonement model? Yeah. So when I started working on this book, it had not occurred to me that I might end up trying to develop a new theory of atonement. This was really not part of the plan. (laughs) But I came to think um, that, you know, if trust is central to the divine human relationship, then surely it must be central to the central part of the divine human relationship for Christians, which is atonement, which is the death and resurrection of Christ. You know, if you can't talk about the relevance of pistis to that, then why are you talking about it really? (laughs) But also I was conscious that there is a lot of pistis language in connection with the language of Jesus as saviour and the atonement. So actually the connection is being made there by the New Testament writers in some form. So, so I ended up trying to, to, um, to develop a trust-based theory of atonement. And 
Um, so I wanted to do two things really in this theory, um, which are bound together. Um, one is really to show um, how the creation or the recreation of trust between God and humanity can release people, um, release people from the, the power of sin. Um, I'm not sure I quite want to put it that it releases people from sin, but it releases people from the power of sin, makes it possible for them to put their trust in God and to be restored to right relationship with God. Um, but I also have an idea that a really strong theory of atonement should explain how people are released by from the power of sin and the power of the suffering that they've caused to themselves by their sins, but also from the power of the suffering that other people's sins have caused them innocently, you know, when it's not their fault. Um, now, most traditional theories, the classical theories of atonement, really focus on um, release, how people are released from the power of sin and the suffering, perhaps also the suffering that their own sins has caused them. But then there is also a family of modern theories of atonement um, in the liberation tradition, and this includes really black theologies of atonement, feminist theologies of atonement too, um, which actually really focus on the idea of um, uh, the suffering and the death of Christ, releasing people from um, undeserved suffering, you know, as, as the, you know, the passion of Christ as, a, as a liber an act of liberation of people from suffering. So there are theories which focus on um, sort of release from sin, and there are theories which focus on release from suffering, modern ones particularly. But I think a really strong theory should try to do both, really. So I've tried to do both um, in this theory, and I have, I'm not certain whether I can explain very clearly how I've tried to do both, but I've, anyway, I've tried. Uh, but I have drawn here, um, I might be able to nail it down in a minute for you. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I've drawn again, um, particularly on some really interesting work in psychology and um, on the borders between psychology and sociology, uh, because there is a really big body of work on how the restoration of trust um, and the sense of being trustworthy um, helps to restore ex-convicts, ex-offenders, um, to um, uh, rehabilitate them into society, restore them to relationships of trust with society. There's also um, a lot of really interesting work on um, uh, vic with, with victims of trauma, um, work on how the restoration of trust may help people to come to terms with trauma and to restore kind of functioning relationships uh, uh, with uh, pe people around them, not necessarily with perpetrators of abuse, for instance, but with you know people in general, people who have suffered trauma, have suffered abuse, um, suffer a terrible loss of trust in everybody, really, and restoring that is a really important part um, of helping them to come to um, some kind of, um, to move on to, or, well, to come to some kind of future. Um, uh, and there is also very good work on um, how the restoration of trust helps um, uh, people who have suffered in political conflicts and military conflicts, you know, to come back to terms with each other and to learn to live with each other again. So there is really good work on the role of trust in kind of um, restoring relationships, both the relationships of people who have sinned, as it were, ex-offenders, and relationships of people who have been the victims of sin and victims of trauma and, um, and abuse. And I, so I've drawn on that to try to show how uh, the restoration of trust between um, God and humanity might restore people both from sin and from suffering. And 
Um, the way that the, the, the first way that I've tried to show that happening is by um, showing Christ as mediator. Now, there's a fair amount of uh, language of Christ as mediator between God and humanity around the New Testament, particularly in Paul. Um, and um, Paul, of course, also has a lot of pistis language in connection with the death of Christ. Um, and so I've suggested that his pistis language is actually um, closely connected with his mediation language, not least because trust and trustworthiness is always described as a key quality of mediators in the ancient world. So if you're a mediator, if you're somebody who has been in the business of restoring trust between people who don't trust each other in the ancient world, um, you are you have to be both trusting of both parties and trustworthy to both parties. So what I have tried to suggest is that Christ is in a relationship of trust with God, a two-way relationship of trust with God. And he also seeks to create a relationship of trust with people. And as a result of those two separate parallel relationships of trust he has, is able he's able to mediate and restore trust between god and people and i developed that argument um, out of paul out of romans 3 and galatians 2 and philippians 3. um and then um uh that trust is kind of vindicated by the resurrection experiences which are therefore helpful to the disciples if not necessarily deeply helpful to the disciples in that process now that theory doesn't, one thing that theory doesn't do as far as it goes is explains why Christ had to die if he did have to die. And this is something which is much discussed in classical theories of atonement because uh, there are theories, um, as many listeners will know, there are theories which explain why Christ had to die, some of which are regarded as um, unnecessarily punitive or give a rather harsh picture of God. And there are theories which give a much um, more, um, a stronger picture of God as loving and forgiving, which don't really explain why Christ had to die. And um, and theories in which Christ is a mediator in particular don't really seem to explain why Christ had to die because mediators don't normally have to die to do their job. Right. So so I, and I, so I think you have to take on, if you're thinking about it, you have to take on the question, did Christ have to die and if so, why? And what I have suggested is that um, as a human being in the situation he was in before his death, he had to go through with his arrest, betrayal and arrest and crucifixion, because to run away would have been a failure of trust in God. He couldn't be the person that he was and run away from arrest. And therefore, in that sense, he did have to die. As the person he was, he did in practice have to die. And that doesn't mean that it was not a profound human evil, which I think we should accept the cross was. Um, but he had to he had to go through with it as the person that he was. Um, I've also suggested that the fact that he went through with it and that his death and resurrection showed that for those who are in a, a relationship of trust with God, even suffering and death don't destroy that relationship. The fact that he, he went through that changes what is what, what people understand as possible in their relationship with God. So I also think he had to die to change people's understanding of, of the relationship that it is possible to have with God. And that, and that helps them that helps people to imitate Christ, but it's more than imitation. It's about it's just about changing people's understanding of what is possible for them. And I've used the example of the four minute mile. Um, you know, how before anybody ran a four minute mile, everybody thought it was impossible for years and years. And then somebody did it. And then within a year, quite a lot of people had done it. And now uh, practically everybody could do it, you know, who is at all in, an athlete in training, middle distance athlete. You know, it the fact 
you know, changing what people's sense of what was possible changed what people would actually do. And my sense is that the trust of between God and Christ, which enables Christ to go through the crucifixion and resurrection, changes people's sense of what is possible for them in a way which is really transformative. But I've been, on top of that, I have suggested that his death is also in itself a gift, a grace. Um, and I've used here Paul's language that we um, are crucified with Christ and we are raised to life with Christ, which is itself quite impressionistic, imagistic, quite mysterious language, but very powerful. And Paul is clearly very interested in this idea. And what I've suggested is that um, we don't die with Christ in the sense that we don't die at the same time with Christ or in the same way or for the same purpose. But we do have to die in spirit symbolically to death and to sin. So we do have to go through a kind of death. And um, by, do, by going through his own death and resurrection ahead of us, Christ allows us to go with him in spirit. And in a sense, the risen Christ goes with us in spirit. So we're with him and he's with us. And that helps us to go through what we have to go through to die to sin. Um, and so that is not a reason why Christ had to die, but it is a reason why it was a gift for him to go through with it so that we could go through with it with him in a sense symbolically with him um so uh, so in all those ways i have tried to show how trust is part might be part of an idea, the understanding of atonement okay yeah thank you that's helpful it's, so would you sort of sum up as the sort of the at one meant that the atonement sort of after if you can put it that way is the sort of restored relationships not just with god with but with and uh, one another through Christ, and that there's in a sense also this sense in which the pathway that Christ maps out in the crucifixion, death, and resurrection is that at one moment is achieved through sort of this fundamental, ultimate sort of dependence on God to sort of carry out um, the sort of re revivifying and re not just revivifying but re um, creating and re um, making us and giving us sort of a new sort of second life, so to speak, in Christ that works towards tell us of uh, eternal sort of life with God, again, sort of more relationally framing what, what God's after. And is this sort of like a good <laughs> characterization or would you, would you characterize it any, any other way or? Yes. Yeah. No, I, I would only add, no, I, I would, uh, I think that's a very good characterization. I would just add, I think, um, that I would also emphasize in that the collaboration between God and Christ. Mm. It's not only Christ's obedience to God, which is very important, but it's also the collaboration between them. And that similarly, human, all human beings are invited into that kind of collaboration with God in which actually everything we do with God works for the wider world. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, that's, that helps. Um, that's yeah, that's awesome. So I guess in, in closing, is are there any thoughts you have on how practically as Christians we can apply your model of of trust in our relationships with one another and with God and how you would how would you send us forth in our in our walk yeah that's a great question I suppose two things I would like to emphasize one is we don't have to know everything about God or Christ or our faith we don't always even have to be certain what we believe to be true 
because we may not always be certain. Um, and certainly people of serious faith and also students of theology spend their lives asking questions, not just being sure, but asking questions and probing further. So we don't have to know everything. We don't have to be certain about everything. It is enough to trust that the teaching that we have received, our encounter, our own encounter with God and Christ is trustworthy. It's enough to trust that what we have received and what we experience ourselves is trustworthy. And that's a very reasonable starting point for our faith. And I think the other thing I would emphasize is this idea we've talked about that we are entrusted. It's faith is not just a matter of our putting our trust in God and lying back and letting God do everything from ensuring our eternal life to finding us a parking space, you know? <laughs> um, it's a partnership. It's a partnership in, we, in which we are also entrusted with a lot for the world and for each other. And I think we, are, we will be held accountable for a lot for our world and each other. And as Christians, I think it's really important to take that seriously too. Wonderful. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. Thank you yeah. so much, really. It's been a pleasure to have you with us. Yeah. Well, and thank you very much. It was very enjoyable. And thank you for lots of interesting questions too. Thank so, you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks again for joining us on the Lagos Institute podcast based at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Please consider leaving us a review on iTunes and don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can find out more about the Lagos Institute by visiting our website found in the description.